would ask you to turn in your Bibles again to the seventh chapter of the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7. I want to read again the first 17 verses. It's a little bit lengthy reading, but I think it's important to have before us the fullness of this section of God's Word before we begin to seek to expound it. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And Yahweh said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint, because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria, and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah to terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabiel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. The head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, Yahweh spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of Yahweh your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put... Yahweh to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you should weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as not has not yet come, since uh, has not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Then you begin to read a little bit further down. In that day, in verse 20, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria. The river, of course, being the river Euphrates. It's the Assyrians that become the great threat to Ahaz's kingdom, all the while that he is fixated upon these northern kings, these firebrands, as they are called, that they are the great threat to his throne. And in fact, what Ahaz was trying to do at this particular point in the history is he's looking to strike a deal 
were the Assyrians, to come under the Assyrians' lordship, to be a vassal state before Assyria and pay them um, tribute in order for Assyria to protect him. So his kingdom, he believed, would be kept from falling, not because of God's promise, but because of political intrigue, because of the military support of a foreign power. But you see this man Ahaz was not a good man. This man Ahaz in fact brought all this trouble upon himself because he was a worshipper of foreign gods. We read in the book of Second Chronicles chapter 28 of how this man gave his heart over to the Baals to the Canaanite gods, to worship them, how he worshipped at the high places and even brought his own sons to be brought into the fire, that is, child sacrifice, human sacrifice, for the sake of pacifying the gods of the Canaanites in the hope that they would be on his side and would be protecting him and furthering his interests and his kingdom. What brutality, what madness, what hardness of heart in a king of Judah to be doing these things. And yet God still sends a prophet to him. God still offers him hope if he would turn from his ways, if he would turn from his sins, if he would become a true David, Davidic king, a king after God's own heart. God calls him to faith. God says, if you do not, if you're not firm in faith, you won't be firm at all. He tells them that there's blessedness in believing. There's God's faithfulness that will be with him if he's faithful to God, if he trusts God. Through trust there will be triumph, through trust there will be victory. Through trust his kingdom will be established, as well as his own soul before God would be established. And God is so intent on bringing this king to turn from these idols, to come to trust him, that he offers him an amazing proposition. It's, a, it's, a, it's the proposition of asking of God a sign. Let it be deep as Sheol, the grave, as low as you can think of and, and go, high as the heavens, from heaven to earth, and everything in between. Ask God to do something. Bring an earthquake about that your promise would be validated. Bring a storm from the heavens, lightning and thunder to become to crash. Bring anything in between. They has you make the call. And God says, I will do it. The idea of a sign in Scripture is something that confirms the words of God, the promises of God. Jesus went about Galilee and in Judea uh, performing signs. Signs, wonders, and mighty powers. That's how the New Testament terms the miracles our Lord performed. And what the signs were, were they were significations that God was in Christ. That Jesus was not speaking these words on his own. He was not performing these works on his own. He was the heaven-sent Son of God. And so often he would say to people, believe for the sake of the works. The works themselves validate my ministry. Who does the things that Jesus did? 
Walk upon the water. Command the winds and the waves to be still. What manner of man is this? Is what they declared. That the winds and the waves would obey him. That's often what is meant by a sign. The signs that were brought upon Egypt in the days of Pharaoh when Moses said, let my people go, was that God brought the signs of the plagues. One thing about a sign is they're amazing to behold. They're awesome in wonder. There's something you never forget. It's something remarkable. It's something decisive. It's something that clearly says this is, this is the working of God that these things were done. Israel's God was bringing judgments upon Pharaoh. And the signs of the plagues was the, all the evidence that you need. It's always an interesting thing that God, when he calls people to faith, doesn't call people to blind faith. He doesn't say just leap out into the nothing. He says, believe because I've given you a firm foundation for faith. You should believe because it's believable. Again, we can just believe on the basis of God's word. But remember, you had a man like Thomas who said, unless I see I'm from Missouri, the show me state, you got to show me, show me. Let me, let me put my hands into, into his side, into the wounds of his hands, and then I will believe. Of course, eight days later, Jesus is standing in their midst. He says, okay, Thomas, put, put your hand in my side. Put your hand in my wounds. Be believing. And he says, blessed are those. And he says, you know, your eyes have seen, Thomas. And that's well and good. You have a blessing in what you've seen. And it was necessary for those men to have seen because they were to be eyewitnesses of his resurrection. Part of what an apostle did was testified of what he saw and heard and knew by means of first-hand experience. I know we take that concept of being witnesses for Jesus, and we say, well, we're witnesses because we testify of our own experience. And of course, in that sense, that's true. But we're not witnesses the way the apostles were. They were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. They were with Jesus from the time of the baptism of John to the time that he ascended into heaven. And so they were the ones who were clearly able to speak to the whole issue of this, the, the, the account of Christ's life and death and resurrection and to proclaim the gospel with power and with authority. And we believe because of the apostolic word. We believe because of the credible witness of apostolic representatives appointed by God. Now we've not believed blindly and we've not believed into nothing. We believed into the word and works of the true and the living God who has spoken in history and acted in history and we have full confidence in his words. Ahaz asked a sign. Deep as the grave, high as heaven. We might think Ahaz's response indicated some kind of spirituality or piety I mean doesn't Jesus say you shall not put the Lord your God to the test he's quoting the book of Deuteronomy but you see the kind of test that Israel were asking of God is when God gave them promises that they had ought to have believed because I mean he opened the sea and led them out on dry land he, they, they were witnesses to the plagues that were brought upon the Egyptians they were witnesses to the appearance of God upon Mount Sinai in the midst of the thunder and the lightnings and the fire and the glory cloud that they saw. 
That they should have trusted God and not continually put him to the test. Will God provide us a table in the wilderness? Is what they asked. I mean, where's the food going to come from now? Is God not able to feed them in the wilderness? I mean, he produced the miracle of the manna. Where are we going to get drink? And they were filled with their fears, and they were filled with a sense that they were going to be abandoned. When God said, I will be with you, I will lead you. My presence will go with you. They had no right to be putting God to the test when God had demonstrated again and again and again that he would be faithful to them, that he would keep them, and they needed to walk in his ways and walk by faith, confidently trusting his revealed word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God was what they were called to be doing. Here's a man that didn't care about God's words. And then he quotes one of the words that were given in a completely different context to say to the prophet of God who said, The Lord has said, Ask me and I'll show you. I'll give you demonstration. I'll give you proof. I'll make it clear as can be. That I'm serious in my concerns to secure your throne if you will trust in me. To keep you from these adversaries if you will trust in me. To be your defender if you will trust in me. To secure all of your needs if you will trust in me. He had no concern to trust in God at all. He had his own plan. Assyria. That's what he's going to do. He's going to go to Assyria. He's going to have the Assyrians be his friends. He's going to have the Assyrians be his protector. His covenant Lord was insufficient. The God who demonstrated again and again his faithfulness and his love. Who needs him? Go on. Go to Assyria. So with a false piety, Ahaz says, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Not because he was satisfied with God's words. No, no. It's because he didn't want anything to do with God at all. He didn't want anything to do with Israel's God at all. He didn't want anything to do with Israel's prophet. He was basically rejecting God's word. And so the response that is given in the words of verse 13 is, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You're not going to ask for a sign. The Lord will give you a sign. What's the sign? Well, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now we read earlier in our worship service this morning, Matthew chapter 1, where these words are quoted, where the prophet Isaiah is quoted, is speaking these words, these words which Matthew fully believes is fulfilled in the virgin conception of Jesus. That Mary is with child of the Holy Spirit. As it says in Luke, the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. And that which was born in her is the Son of God. This is God who's brought this conception about. Before Mary ever knew a man. She had not been unfaithful to Joseph. She was a virgin. these words though Matthew saw them clearly what their intent and meaning were 
And though the church has declared through the years clearly what these words mean and who they refer to, yet these words have caused great controversy throughout the years. And I want to address just a bit of the great controversy that are contained in these words. And then I want to conclude our message with the great concept contained in the words themselves. So we have a great controversy to discuss a bit. We'll give you every aspect of the controversy. That's a lengthy debate, a lengthy dispute. Certainly amongst the synagogue, there was great controversy as to what these words mean. The Hebrew, or the Jewish people who sought to deflect any thought that Jesus ever could be the true Messiah of Israel would look at these words and simply say, what in the world do these words have to do with Jesus? How do you make the leap from the word of a Hebrew prophet given to a Hebrew king concerning his kingdom at his time, at his place, God offering security to him then, how do you go from there to Jesus? How do you fast forward 800 years to an event still in the future? That's a problem that the church has had to answer. Also, there is not only the controversy that comes from the synagogue, there's also the great controversies that come from modernism over the whole matter of predictive prophecies. How can it be that predictions would be made 800 years before an event occurred? Well, maybe, you know, something just above the horizon that a prophet might say would happen because he maybe is a man of his times, knows the signs of the times, and he has some inkling or some presentiment that this might occur or that might occur, and he might happen to get it right. But 800 years in the future? Come on now. Let's be real. No such thing as that can happen. And people look to take this passage and basically say, there's no mention of Jesus here. There's no sense that anything is being told but what has already been fulfilled in the life of King Ahaz. Now, of course, other believers hear that stuff and say, well, wait a minute, no, no, this is Jesus, Jesus only, nothing else but Jesus. And I would say to really make sense of the passage, you really have to understand the prophecy in Scripture always does have something of a direct reference to the time in which that prophecy is spoken, even when it has as its true meaning something more distant in the future. Let me give you an example. Think of Eve when she heard the words in the Garden of Eden before they were exiled when God brought the curses upon the serpent and then the woman and then the man and when he's cursing the serpent he says that I will put enmity between the woman and the serpent between her seed and the serpent seed and then it says he shall bruise your head and his heel would be Bruise. So there'll be the crushing of the serpent's head. There'll be the victory that God will bring over the forces of evil, the forces of darkness that brought about Eve's fall, the fall of humanity into sin as a result of the temptation of the devil. The devil will be destroyed. And you know, you think about how in that had an effect in Eve's own life of bolstering her faith in Yahweh. She bears a son called Cain, and she speaks in terms of bearing a son with the help of Yahweh. 
that Yahweh is central to this. Yahweh is given a promise of the defeat of the serpent and may well be that this is the child that will bring about the very promise of God. And I think every successive generation of Jewish women, when they bore a child, thought maybe this is the Messiah. Maybe this is the promised one. So you see, every single promise does have reference to the particular time in which it's spoken, to the faith of the people that it involved. There's a word of hope. There's a word of encouragement. There's a word that strengthens. There's a word that upholds. The present generation, even when the actual full meaning is still far in the distant future. So there is a future meaning, and there is also a present significance. There's always a present significance. And we should not think these words are not referring to Ahaz. Ahaz's fears, the house of David's fears at this present time. But I want you to notice that it embraces not just Ahaz as an individual, as a person. I brought out last week, I will affirm it again, that in this word of prophecy, you have it bracketed with the idea of house of David. You see, when the conspiracy of these northern kings begin their warfare against Ahaz and his throne, we're told in verse 2, when the house of David was told. Now again, this is not often found in the Bible. David is often referred to in prophecy. Uh, David is often referred to in terms of history. But the language of house of David in the prophets is really unique to this particular passage in which this is found. And then you find it again. When Ahaz says, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test, and God's going to give this word of his own sign to Ahaz, he says in verse 13, Here then, O house of David, comes back again. So I pointed out to you, house of David refers to the Davidic covenant, the promise that God swore to David that there will always be a ruler upon his throne. There will be an eternal kingdom that will come from a descendant of King David. Now you have David's throne that's in Judah now, his son reigning in Judah. In Judah. An unfaithful son, not a king after David's heart, not a king after God's heart, not a king that walked in David's ways, and yet God's willing to deal with this man, even in his obstinance, even in his unbelief, to bring him to faith, to bring him to trust him, to bring him to do what a Davidic king should have done, to faithfully lead God's people. And yet this man has no concern to do it at all. Be it God's still concerned about his promise to David. He's addressing the house of David. He's addressing more than just this one king. He's addressing the Davidic dynasty. When you think about the problem that this one king has, what is he doing? He's fearing the northern kingdom of Israel. He's fearing the Syrians entering into an alliance with them and then coming against Jerusalem, coming against his throne, looking to supplant them with this guy Tabiel, whoever he was, and to make him their puppet king in Judah. That's what he's concerned about. His heart is trembling. The heart of his people is shaking as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And say his word is settle your heart down. Don't fear. If you're a faithful Davidic king, watch the salvation of God. Watch what God will do to men of faith. Don't let your heart be faint. Okay. Ahaz says, but look, I've got bigger fish to fry than troubling with you, Isaiah. 
I'm going to go meet the king of Assyria. Because he's my friend. He's the one I'm going to trust in. Well, you know, when this prophecy that God gives to Ahaz is fulfilled in some born child of that particular time coming to some years of maturity and these kings being out of the way, you know what what awaits? You know what awaits when Ephraim and Syria are out of the way? There's Assyria. Assyria. Assyria is coming. What's going to happen to David's throne then? House of David, where are you going to be then? Now when Assyria falls, as it does in the days of Zedekiah, I'm you pride of Zedekiah, after Josiah, you have Je- Jeconiah and the, his, the brothers, they come one after another to, uh, to rule. What's on the horizon? Babylon. Babylon. Taken away into exile. Then you have Persia coming after that. And then you have Greece coming after that. And then you have Rome coming after that. Then you have kingdom after kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. The kings of the earth that present themselves against the Lord, against His anointed one. Saying we will loose our bonds from them. They won't. God won't control us. David's son will not control us. God's king will not guide us and govern us and determine our lives. We're, we're, we're authorities unto ourselves. We're gods unto ourselves. We rule ourselves. We don't need this God. He that sits in the heavens will laugh. The Lord will have him in derision, Psalm 2 says. And then God says, I will set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I'm the one who's going to determine who this true Davidic king is going to be. And you see, in a real sense, folks, God's concerned to say to the house of David a little bit more than just Ahaz. There's a promise here that stuff is going to go okay in your day. You're going to survive this ordeal. He's concerned to tell us who the true king will be. How the Davidic throne will be established in not just the security of a few years, but in the eternal dominion that was promised unto David. Now can you imagine... The child's born in Ahaz's time. Maybe it's his son. Now, it wasn't Hezekiah. Hezekiah was probably around six years of age when Isaiah went out to speak with him. So he, the next king has already been born. Uh, was it Isaiah's son? Some people think it's Mayor Shelah Hashbaz in chapter 8. There's all kinds of conjecture as to who the child would have been in reference to the day of Ahaz himself. But what memorable birth would that have been? Who would commemorate the child that's born in that time? We have a yearly holiday every December 25th to commemorate the birth of some person that, that lived in the 8th century BC and then died. No. This would be an obscure no-name person. We don't know who he is. It's so ambiguous in and of itself in terms of the day in which Ahaz lived. You can't even really come to a decided point of view as to who it would be speaking of with reference to Ahaz and God's word to him. What its significance would be to the present generation. But now when the Holy Spirit comes to overshadow a virgin... When the power of the Most High gives life to the womb of someone who had never had relations with a man. 
When what is born in Mary is born of the Holy Spirit, then every eye is lifted up. Everyone takes notice. Here is a sign, not just unusual, but singular. Never happened before, never will happen again. A supernatural person is coming into the world through a supernatural birth. One who will be the very presence of God with us. Not just with us for a span of a few years when Ahaz gets out of hot water or successive kings have their throne secured. You know, one of the things about the reading of Matthew 1 is that all of those kings of Judah, even at their best, were insufficient. They couldn't really be trusted. When you think of David himself, what David did with Bathsheba, a loyal man in his army, Uriah, taking his wife and then exposing him so that he would be put to death in order to cover up his adultery. What a wretched thing. Probably he forced himself on that woman. Very probably that's the kind of man that David was. You want to trust yourself to the kind of man that would rape your wife? The kind of man that would cover it up with an act of murder? And that's the best of the kings of Judah's line. You think of Ahaz, he's only concerned about himself. Later on, Isaiah has interactions with Hezekiah, much better king, a king that actually believed the promise of God. Actually, when the Assyrians come up to the gate of Jerusalem, takes the letter of the Rabshakeh and takes it into the temple, spreads it out before the Lord, prays a prayer, trusting in divine deliverance, and God delivered him. So that's a great king. That's a king that's mighty in faith. A king most worthy to be followed and served. But then he brings in these ambassadors from Babylon, comes and shows them all the wealth of his kingdom, all the treasures were. And God sends Isaiah to him and says, what in the world are you doing? Taking these guys around. These are the very people that are going to take off, take away all that wealth. And then you know what it says? It says Hezekiah was comforted because it wouldn't happen in his day. Wouldn't happen in his day. Let someone else worry about it. Let the next generation worry about it. It's not my problem. You want to trust yourself to that kind of a king? I mean, the point is. All of the kings of Israel would not be people you would want to trust. They're not trustworthy. They're not worthy of absolute allegiance and loyalty because in a real sense in them there is not the fulfillment of the promise that his name shall be called Emmanuel. God is not with us completely, fully, assuredly, without question or doubt with any of those kings at their best day. But God is with us when Jesus comes. This is God himself coming into the world. The birth of Jesus is the birth of incarnate God. The word that became flesh and dwelt among us. So we behold his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. This indeed is a sign. High is the heaven. Deep is hell. A sign that every eye turns to and say, I see God is working here 
in a way that cannot be explained in any other way than God has given his own terms of his own sign, of his own promise, of his own presence, a presence that will never leave us or forsake us, a presence that's the presence of incarnate God, the same yesterday, today, and forever, never changing, never altering, in his heart of love and goodwill, of his faithfulness to his people. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The sign of the virgin conception. I know people say it's it's not the same word that's technically a virgin. Betula. It's Oma. Well, that's true. But you know, if you said Betula to Ahaz, Ahaz would have probably been thinking of uh, not even looking around for (laughs) anyone to get born. A virgin conceiving. And Alma spoke of a young woman. But the young woman was a young woman of... Um, marriageable age but had never entered into marriage. Every time it's used in the Old Testament it's used of an unmarried woman. So it wouldn't be a woman that you would be expecting to have a child. And that's the point of it. Is the child is by God's own act of conception. Of God's own act of coming into the world through the virgin birth coming in the person of the true king of Israel the one who was born king of the Jews, the one who is the presence of God with us, certainly and eternally. Well, I don't know if I settled the controversy. For my satisfaction, I did. Hope for your satisfaction as well. But perhaps even more important than settling the controversy with the synagogue or with modernists is that we understand the great concept that's contained in this promise of the God of heaven and earth being with us, of Emmanuel, God with us. With us to do what? Certainly when you think of the situation that Ahaz was in and Israel's kings often were in, the presence of God with them was a presence to rescue them in the midst of their dangers. We need rescue. This world is a dangerous place. And troubles mount. And troubles threaten. And the hearts of God's people, very much like the hearts of the people of David's house, often do shake as trees of the forest shake before the wind. And yet God comes to rescue. And you know what that word rescue that we use often means in the Old Testament? He's a God who saves. He's a God who comes with salvation. The Lord is our salvation, our rescuer. Because his rescue for us, his people, is not just the external enemies that would threaten us. It's even the stuff that's in here within our own hearts. the, The things that would betray us within our own heart our own blindness, our own wickedness, our own evil, our own tendency to be hateful and hating and abusive and hard and difficult and just wretched and miserable and naked and blind and all that we are in terms of what sin has reduced us to. How sin has brought us to be 
fallen creatures living in a fallen world with enemies not only without but enemies within. We need one mighty to rescue. We need one mighty to save. Not just a political leader. Not just an earthly monarch. We need a heaven-sent savior. And as Matthew takes up the language of Isaiah 7.14 and says it's fulfilled in this virgin conception of Mary. He says to Joseph, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. The rescuer comes in the person of Jesus The name itself means Yahweh our salvation. And that salvation that he comes to bring is a salvation from sin. Not in sin, but away from sin. From all of the ramifications of sin. Whether there be our guilt before God. Whether it be our depravity before God. Whether it be our tendency to stray and to be wayward and self-centered and self-absorbed. Sin in all of its enormity. and all of its magnitude. and all of its dimensions. and all of its consequences. and all of its ramifications. Jesus comes mighty to save. Away from sin. But ultimately this salvation, you know where it leads us to? It leads us to a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. It leads us to a salvation in which not only is sin and its guilt taken away and in its power taken away and diminished but ultimately in its very presence it's out of the world. As the great end of sin which is death the wages of sin is death so the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I think it was in Sunday school we mentioned of the passage in Isaiah. It's also in the book of Revelation in which death is swallowed up of life. Swallowed up of life. You think of death being the, the grave that swallows everything. Swallows everything. All of the people we've known and walked with and loved. Parents, grandparents, great-grandparents. Dead and gone. The grave has come and swallowed them up. And one has come from heaven's glory to do what? To swallow up death itself. To expunge from the graves all that are in the tombs. That they will come forth in resurrection power. In resurrection life. To enter into an eternal state with God. At least the redeemed with God. In that new heavens and new earth. In which righteousness dwells. God is with us to rescue us. But then God is also with us to reign over us. To be the true king. Where is he that is born? The king of the Jews. Jesus is the true king. Worthy to be enthroned in majesty and glory at the Father's right hand. You know, every time we have an election and some political party takes office, the other half of the nation trembles thinking that person is not worthy to be the president. What are they going to do? We're just fearful of what's going to happen in the next four years to the next election. And it's gloom and doom, and it's woe is me, and it's all kinds of calamity that's going to come. That's how people immersed in politics, that's how they react. But you know there's one upon the throne of God's universe worthy to rule. 
the governments upon his shoulders, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, the increase of his peace, government and peace, there's no end. Worthy to, isn't it great to have someone on the throne that's actually worthy of the position? Actually belongs in the place where God has assigned him at his right hand, controlling all of the destiny of human life and human existence in ways that is good and pleasing, and ultimately to bring us into the presence of his glory with everlasting joy. God is with us, Emmanuel. To rescue, yes. To reign, yes. But also to reveal. To reveal. It's a great emphasis of John chapter 1 that speaks of the incarnation. That no man has seen God at any time. No man can see me and live, God says. We can't see God. He dwells in light unapproachable. The God who no man has seen or can see. How can we know God? This God has come and tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. The God we can't see, we can see in Jesus. Have I been with you so long, Philip, and do you not know me? He that has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus has come to reveal the Father. Jesus has come also to renew to renew a fallen creation that's that's the great thing about the resurrection the resurrection is power power unleashed in the world in a new birth in a recreation the power of his resurrection the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable to his death how do you become like Jesus how do you become Absorbed with others as Jesus was, to go about doing good as he did, to have compassion to the needy, to be uh, caught up with the will of his Father and the meat and drink, to do the will of. How do, you, how do we ever be like Jesus? Isn't it crazy to say our whole concern is to be conformed to the image of Christ, to live life in the ways of Christ? You know, we, we can talk about it, but we can't actually do it in a stuff of our own strength but thankfully we don't have just the stuff of our own strength Paul prays a prayer to the Ephesians in the first chapter he says Lord I pray that you open up the eyes of their heart to know the exceeding greatness of the power that's at work in them like unto the power of your glory when you raised Jesus from the dead and set him at your right hand far above all power and rule and dominion and every name that's named that's the power that is at work in us and so we can't ever say can't do it no can do I'm just too habituated with my sins I'm just too caught up in my own stuff folks we can break the cycle of sin we can we're not destined to go on in the same old paths when God's come in the gospel with the power of a new creation God is with us yes to rescue yes to reign yes to reveal and yes to renew to make us new creations in our Lord Jesus Christ and then when you come down to at the end of the day he's with us to rejoice our hearts to bring us to that place where Peter says, though we've never seen him, 
yet believing, we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. The end of the day, even in the midst of all of the lamentations of life, all the complaints, all the troubles, all the difficulties, all the hardships, you think of the book of Psalms, it's filled with laments, it's filled with complaints, it's filled with how are my enemies increased, for the length of breath of it. All, all the troubles of life are being spoken of. But yet it's called the book of the Psalms, and in Hebrew it's Tehillim, which means praises. Where are the praises? The praises really are most of them come at the end I mean in every psalm there's a bit of praise there's hardship, there's difficulty usually ends in some note of praise but at the end of the book of the psalms it's all praise, it's the hallelujah psalms that conclude the book, five of praises again and again and again and again and that's what the Christian life's about yeah there's troubles yes there's difficulties but count it all joy (laughs) yes there are things to lament but there's also things be clicking your heels and dancing gospel jigs and being filled with inexpressible delight just at the goodness of our God and the provisions of his grace he is with us Emmanuel, God with us never to leave us, never to forsake us that's the great concept of the verse whatever you want to make about the controversy you boil it all down, get this God is with us, Emmanuel, to rescue, to reign, to reveal, to renew, to bring joy to our hearts and lives as his people. May God be pleased to bless us in contemplation of his word and make our Christmas celebration this year to be filled with fullness of joy in his presence. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for this time in your word. We're thankful for the greatness of this promise that you've given, not just to Ahaz, but to all people in all places, of what you would do to bring forth a worthy king, what you would do to send your son, that supernatural person, born in that supernatural way, to do that supernatural work, of bringing us back to God. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the fact that he is the incarnation of the God of Israel, God enfleshed, God present in our world, God present by the Spirit in our hearts, present with us, never to leave us, never to forsake us, and to bring us eternally with everlasting joy into his presence in a new heavens and a new earth. Lord, for these realities, we praise your name. We bless you. We ask that by faith we would enter into the realities with greater fullness. We pray that at this Christmas season especially, and when we do focus upon Christ coming into the world, we would see what a remarkable sign this is and what a remarkable difference his coming has made. So we ask you to hear our prayers. We ask you to bless your people as we come and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.